Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Jeffrey Horn is one of the greatest acting teachers ever to grace his craft. His classes at Lee Strasberg's acting school just off Union Square, my alma mater, have made him a legend. But he once achieved fame of a much broader sweep, scoring a lead role in David Lean's war epic set in the jungles of Burma, Bridge on the River Kwai. You're lovely. Lovely. That was 1957, and he was 25 years old. Then he seemed to disappear. Horn had a few roles in the 60s, but didn't resurface as a notable actor until the 70s in New York. Several wives and children later, and having survived an addiction crisis. As Horn's career relaunched, Lee Strasberg, one of the three founders of method acting in the United States, asked him to teach some classes. Horn taught me at NYU in 1979. He had traveled a long way from a cosseted and isolated childhood. You were raised in Argentina? Born in Argentina, moved to Cuba when I was five. I came to the States to school. I got kicked Your out. Your dad of- was an oil exec. My dad worked for an oil, the Sandra Oil Company, which is now Exxon. He had a good job. Were you close to your parents when you were young? I'm a mama's boy. I'm mm-hmm. more like my mother. My father was more of a... Go-getter. Uh, when I was young, we, we, Tyrant. we, we, were, were, we were invited <laughs> to lunch at um, Ernest Hemingway's house in Havana. We went out to lunch there. My father, my mother, and I. And uh, we had lunch. Oh, this is good. You'll love this. He taught me how to drink out of a bota, the Spanish uh, gourd the thing. Good, good thing for yeah. a future alcoholic, yeah, right? Really. Uh, you learn from the greats. And my father was always talking about, be a man, you got to be a man. And I remember looking at my father and looking at him, and I said, wait a minute, there's only one man in this room. Hemingway was it. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I, got to, I, I was out in his home in uh, Ketchum with my mother and his widow, and she showed me where he shot himself, right at the spot. Oh. Terrible. Oh. What a man he was, though. What an extraordinary. You left Cuba to go to school? Boarding school. What boarding school did you go to? Millbrook School for Boys. And you were there by yourself, your parents overseas. They were in Cuba. I felt like a complete alien up here. I remember the first time I met someone that I could talk to and I liked, and I put my arm around him like that. Oh, we don't do that in America. In Cuba, you did that with your friends. You walked with your friends with your arm around each other. It was in the wrong school. Did your mom come visit you when you were there? No. She came once, and everybody in the school got an award but me. And then I got kicked out just before graduating. Your parents stayed there how much longer? They remained in they Cuba for They stayed there for years? No, my father moved to Venezuela with a different job. My mother remarried. They both remarried within three weeks. It sounds grand, but it really was sort of difficult. Yeah. That's what society my, my people mother do. My mother and my stepfather were staying at the Gotham Hotel, which is on Fifth Avenue and 55th Street. Uh, it's something else, I Maybe. forget, the peninsula. Peninsula. And my father and my mother, my stepmother, were staying at the St. Regis across Fifth Avenue. Right. And we went back and forth, my sister and I, for the whole long weekend. It was, I want to write a short story about that. It, you know, it's, it just sounds too rich. It wasn't your choice. My wife keeps saying, Rich, you're so, you were so rich, because she grew up poor in Alabama. Yeah. And then I went to Stanford University, which was because I had a connection. Yeah. You know who my first audition was with in New York? 
because of a contact was Kazan. My first audition. You see, my career was a little different than yours. Yeah. It was Kazan who told me to study with Lee. I was an ignorant twit. That Your was, first audition was for Kazan. It was for Tea and Sympathy for the road show, for the road company. Did you get the job? No, no. I, fit, I read for 15 seconds, and he said, that's fine, you have a nice something. He said something pleasant to me, and he said, you need a good acting teacher. You know what it was? I felt like a boy always. And so when I was playing a boy, I was okay. But if I was suddenly, I had to be a man with a wife and kids, and I don't know how to do that. Even though I might be have been married right, with the wife right, and right. kids. It was still far away. It was very alien, yes. <laughs> you know, which is maybe why some of those marriages didn't work out so well. You know? But in that heyday of your film career and these massive no. directors you worked with, you felt awkward and... Oh, clumsy and pathetic. And the first part, when I was on live TV in the first days, those were great days in 54, 55, 56, before I got any good jobs. I did Billy Budd on television. I played Billy Budd the boy live on TV. George Roy Hill directed it. Did it was really? terrific with Luther Adler and Joseph Wiseman and a wonderful cast of people. Mm. That was fun. I did feel free then. What do you think made Kazan Kazan? What was different about him? I auditioned for Kazan that first time. Then I auditioned for him again for Splendor in the Grass with Jane Fonda, Warren Beatty's part. And, uh, we'd read the scene and, and we, we were okay. So he said, well, let's try something. He put his arm around me. And uh, even though he was not big, man, he seemed a giant. And uh, I always thought that he was like uh, uh, this Greek guy who smelled of olive oil. I don't know. It smells a strong smell from him. And uh, he said something to me. Uh, you'll probably have to cut this, but he said, um, you know, in the scene, it's, it's when you're talking, he said, it's, it's like somebody's fucked your mother. And I don't know why it happened, but it was as if he would pressed a button inside me. And I gave really a good audition. Right. And I didn't get the part. Warren right. got it. Oh, Bill Hinge walked in with Warren right after I right. did my audition. But it felt better. That audition felt as good as anything else I ever did in acting. Wow. And that's what it was like. Incidentally, years later, I figured something out. That it's not that he knew me so well that he picked the right thing to say to me to get me going. He was talking personally about himself and his mother, uh-huh. who he loved. He was lending that to you. And... It happened to work. Right, yeah. He complained about Marlon because Marlon would hear three words and walk away from him. And he said, God, it would drive me crazy. He'd just walk away. I was saying something. And I realized that's all he needed was those three words. He mm. didn't need a long speech. Okay, so, all right. So, Lee Strasberg, 1955. I said, Lee, I've been studying with you for a year. Can I audition for the actor's studio? He said, you can, but you're not ready. That's how he talked. After two years, I said, Lee, can I audition for the actor's studio? He said, what scene are you doing? And I told him. He said, good. So the part was Tea and Sympathy. I don't know if you remember that play. Mm-hmm. There's a boy in prep school who feels different. He's accused of being gay. He's not gay. He's just different. He's a little more sensitive than the other ones and so forth. And he gets kicked out of boarding school for whatever it was. Guess what? Jeffrey went to boarding school, felt different. He came from Cuba, got kicked out of boarding school. It was a good part for me. Yeah. And I got in my first audition. Harvey Keitel took six auditions. He's a much better actor than I. <laughs> Don't much say that. better action. You're just different actor. No, he's much better than I ever was. I think I that, can't imagine you, if I may say so, masturbating against the side of the car as an evil detective in Bad Lieutenant. No, no, no. There's things that Harvey does and there's things that he you do. He does that very well. There's yes. a menace to yes, Harvey and right. a power to him. And there's other things you do well. Anyway, so I got in because I was right for it and I understood it and I got it and I was moved by it. That was the peak of my career, 23 years old. Everything went downhill after that. 
I played your lawyer one day on a soap <laughs> opera. And I say, he's my goddamn student, and I'm playing his lawyer, and I have three lines. Look, your, your life and my life are very different. <laughs> you grew up on Long Island. I grew up in Cuba. You went on a soap opera. You worked at NBC. That's where you did the soap, wasn't it? Yeah. I remember somebody told me, he said, Alec was great. He knew everybody in this building. He knew how to push himself. What happened to me was just the opposite. I was able to live at my mother's apartment. My mother and stuff, they lived on Fifth Avenue. So that's where I lived in New York. So it's not, not really hardship. And I got a lead on a television show. Rod Steiger was my father and I was his son. That was my first job, a lead. And then I was doing these leading roles on television. Before you made a movie, how long was it? I didn't make a movie till 1986. I was in TV for, so for six years. Six years. And, and so I went from there to a movie to a Broadway play, to the big movie. So I didn't have to do six years of terrible television. Yeah. You said, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to be on not slanding the rest of my life. You know? But anyway, yeah. that's a lot. Seven years <laughs> yes. or six years. Yeah. Well, that was the beginning of some weird choices for me because I was offered a television film, Fatal Vision, the Joe McGinnis uh-huh. book about uh, Jeffrey McDonald, the Jeffrey McDonald right. murder case. I went into a bar on 8th Avenue and knocked down two huge shots of whiskey before I went into that interview. And I fucking nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) I nailed it. And I got that part, and then I turned it down. Uh And I try to say to people, you know what you got to do when you have a career is you reach a point where you make peace with those decisions that you made. You make peace with them. You know where I am now? Right where I want to be. I got married to a wonderful woman. I got four great kids. I work when I need to work. Everything's going pretty well. The thing about drinking, I know it's interesting. I auditioned for a period of adjustment in London at the Royal Court Theater. And uh, I went into a bar, have two. I'd made the best best audition audition of your life. Oh, it was good. I got the part, and then British Equity didn't let me work. Of course, I tried to do it another time after that. It didn't work. It just worked (laughs) once. I mean, I drank a lot, but I didn't. uh, In my book, I wrote all about my own situation. Um, All right. And now I think to myself, with. Trump, if I was drinking now, oh, oh my God. Oh, oh, my God. You and I would be in that bar on 6th Avenue watching the ball game. We wouldn't go anywhere. Let's face it. Drinking is fun. You know, that's why we do it. I mean, I drank a lot. Do you think that affected your career? It affected, affected my life so much that it, it, that affected my career. Right. My life was so... Um, I have a son who's a drug addict, and he says, it's fun. You forget. You know, don't, don't forget that it's fun. For a period. Until it it's not fun. Yeah, right, exactly. And, and when it was not fun anymore, then I stopped. Thank God I was able to stop. Some people can't. Sure. Um, I want to ask you, you know, for me, one of the most memorable moments in my life was when I did the movie The Aviator, because it was my first time working with Marty. And I'd always dreamed about working with the greatest directors, and I didn't have that chance. And I remember uh, that was a problem that I, I, could, I, I had to fight to get over, which was I almost couldn't concentrate on my work because I was so intimidated to be on a set with Marty. But you're there, and you're going to be that next guy. Everybody thinks you're so handsome. When you show up to do Bridge on the River Choir, and you're with Lean, a god, you're with a god making a film. Were you ready? I was so frightened. I was so terrified. Lean was, he was was not an actor's director like Kazan, or like some of them were wonderful with actors, but he was so sensitive to people. He was always moving things around. And I asked David about it, and he said, oh, oh, I don't want to make the actor self-conscious, so I'll take a glass and I'll move it three inches to the left. <laughs> and they'll think, oh, I guess I'm okay. The glass is fine. I'm okay. And he, it was a little technique that he'd worked out to make people feel comfortable. But uh, 
when I had lines, I remember I was sick to my stomach the first day. I had to throw up. I had, oh, I was so panic stricken because it was all action at first, oh. getting the bridge and Trains putting the and stuff and all that stuff. I was fine doing that. throwing people in a box. <laughs> We're doing that. I could do that, but. Uh, River Kwai was in the early 60s, not in no, the 50s. Seven, uh, 57. 57. But I'm assuming even then someone like Lean had his own financial edicts that in order to make the movie he wanted to make, he needed a star. Oh, yeah. So Holden was the, was the ace in the hole. Well, they Big talked star. about Cary Grant. They talked about other yeah, people, they wanted this, But they wanted yeah. a star in, in one of these roles. Because oh, yeah. they had Guinness, yeah. who was a movie star, but not the same uh, caliber. And Jack Hawkins was actually a bigger star in England at the time. Bigger than Guinness. Yeah. But Holden is the ace in the hole in terms of movie stardom. Yeah. Was he the same with Holden as he was? Did he treat everybody like a company? Or did he treat his star no, differently? No, the same. He was the same. Interesting. Okay. Did you become pals with any of those guys? Alec Guinness was very nice. Uh, Jack Hawkins was a big snob, which was really peculiar. Who would have thought that? No. Like a, like a, like a, a tough guy, like an English tough guy. Not like a gangster tough guy, but like a man. You know? He was kind of a snob. He would talk about, have you met this? He was a boy. He was a 38. He was only 38. He looked much older. 38-year-old boy. He was a boy. He, got, he would get bored, and so he'd throw firecrackers in the dining room. I mean, just like a kid. One of my favorites of all time. <laughs> I worship Holden. Well, he was Worship. lovely. He was always very friendly and very helpful. And Not very... a nerve in his body on camera. So relaxed yeah. on camera. Yeah. Hayakawa? Hayakawa. What was he like? Oh, Did I he speak any English? Yeah, it was rough. But he, uh, when I went to Japan afterwards, and he took me to a geisha house. He treated me to a dinner at a geisha house. Very classy, very lovely. Lovely place. No sex, but yeah. proper. And uh, in fact, even in the middle of the dinner, he got up and danced. He was 80, I think, at the time. He did some Japanese dance. I remember all these things. If I see the movie, I remember all the sensory things. I remember what the smell in the air was. I remember the trees. I remember the water. I remember there was how hot it was. Uh, I don't think much about the, the movie itself, but the companionship, the friends you make. Oh, and I had a girlfriend on the movie too. She, one of the Thai girls. Well, that can't so be helped. That was great. She was lovely. What a great thing in your life that you got to make that movie with one of the greatest directors, to be well, yeah. in the jungle with Lean. Yeah, that's right. Your career, when people take the time to examine your career, you're in that beautiful fold in live TV and films where, you know, you're the next James Dean. Okay, so, you know, my career was a disaster, right? I peaked at 23 right. and I went downhill after that. It's like Matthew Modine when he does his Full Metal Jacket diary right. and he writes a lot about working with Kubrick on Full right. Metal Jacket, which I love because you can tell he just soaked it up and loved every minute of it, knew I may never have it this good again as long as I live, you know? So That's funny. When you think of the, my first thought when you were talking about how great it must have been in the jungle, I saw David Lean in Venice one time, the Italian Fourth of July. We are in a gondola with uh, bread and cheese and a huge thing of wine. Actually, I brought that. And it was absolutely lovely. He and his wife, and did I have a wife then? I think maybe there were four of us. There's a good chance you did. It was a, <laughs> apparently. Because at the conclusion of your biographical material that our producer forwarded to me, sources differ on wives and children. <laughs> He's either been married four or five times and has eight or nine children. And we're going to give you the opportunity now to clarify <laughs> that for our listeners. How many times have you been married? Well, I've had more marriages and two long-term relationships, which I call marriages. So that makes six. Four uh, legal marriages. Legal marriages, yeah. And how many children do you have? Uh, I have three daughters that are my daughters, and I have six adopted kids. Right. Wait a minute. That's nine. Yeah. yeah you have nine children. But two of them have died. Right. So there are only seven left. Right. But, but in your lifetime, you had nine children. Altogether. 
You like kids. Uh, or your wives like kids. No. Well, <laughs> actually, it, I did always like kids. I like kids. Yeah. Uh, do you know the dark at the top of the stairs? Yes. Play? The young boy, he's Jewish. He doesn't fit in. He's at a military school. And he's going to go to a party. And he goes there, and he's dancing with the daughter of the hostess. And she comes and pulls her daughter away. My son, my daughter is not going to dance with any dirty Jew. And he goes back to his hotel that night, and he jumps out the window and kills himself. And uh, Bill Lynch, in a little essay about the play, he said he had no sure connections. Bill Lynch was the nicest man, and I thought that was so interesting and moving. And I thought about it a lot because Bill Lynch, out in California, drove his car into the garage one day, left the gas on, because he had no sure connections. In spite of all his success, all his place, he was so alone. Out there. Yeah. I only met him a little bit in California, actually, where he shouldn't have gone to live. Where had he been prior to New York? In New York. He should have been in New York. Why did you never move out there? I did move to California. For how long? Oh, God. 13 long years. I said that for a long time. Why did you come back here? I wanted to act. And he did. Jeffrey Horn packed up his Hollywood apartment and moved back to New York in 1975. Another great artist who had a second act is Mickey Rourke. But first came a brutal intermission. Nothing fell on my plate. There was no work coming in because I was waiting for, you know, Chimino or Coppola, and it didn't happen. So What did happen? What happened was... This piece of shit fell on my plate, and they offered me a boatload of money. And like a whore, I took the four million or whatever it was and bought a big fucking Elvis Presley house that I couldn't afford. And uh, I remember doing this film and hating myself every day. My full interview with Mickey Rourke is in our archives at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. We left Jeffrey Horn in 1975. He had moved back to New York after his career flamed out in Hollywood. That ended up being his next lucky break. I had a revival of my career in my 40s. I came back to New York. I did some plays off-Broadway. I was in a musical, Merrily We Roll Along. Mm-hmm. When did the idea come that you were going to teach acting? I was asked. By who? At uh, least Lee. Do you recall what year that was? What, what, like what uh, decade? 60s, 70s, 80s? I think 80s? it was 78. Um, I always liked teaching. I always taught something. I taught yoga for a while, gardening. I taught horseback riding because I had all these kids around and I would do that. So. And I was working a lot at the actor's studio doing scenes, mm-hmm. a lot. And Lee saw me do a play there and he said, oh, he grudgingly said, all right, try one class. Yeah? I never worked Monday nights, and so I always taught a Monday night class. That was my beginning. And then NYU, and that's when you were there. 79. I'd only been teaching for a year. God knows what miserable stuff I told you, because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It's what made me famous. I I, I lived on every word of yours. I didn't know what to do. I was crying during a sense memory exercise. You poked me in the stomach, and you said, I want you to work on your insides as much as your outsides. It's funny. I remember that, too. You told me that Milton Kutzella said the same thing to you. Well, Milton Kutzella walked— When I was with you, I was— Skinny. I mean, I was lean. And then when I got with him, I met him in 19. 
1983, 84. Well, never forget. You know, you, the first thing you do when you're a poor kid and you make a lot of money is you start to eat whatever you want to eat. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and you don't hesitate. You know what I mean? I'm like, well, I, I discovered sushi when sure. I moved to L.A. in That's the 83. True. And I haven't turned back since. But I'll never forget. Katsalas walked up to me. He never said one thing to me the whole time. And he walked up behind me. And he whispered in my ear. He said, lose eight pounds. <laughs> eight. <laughs> it was very specific. Eight, yes. He was a genius about, about that kind of estimation. But when you began teaching, how's it changed for you over the course of the oh, many years? Oh, my God. I feel liberated. It used to be what and what is it now? I'm not very confident. Never have been. And I felt anxious all the time, and I was worried that I wasn't doing it right and that I wasn't helping. And maybe five years, maybe longer, I suddenly felt liberated. I felt like I could be myself. I think really for the first time in my life teaching, I never felt that as an actor. I could be myself, which is what you always had from the beginning. How have the students changed who come into these spaces that you teach in? Is it the same, the students? There's more diversity now. Mm -hmm. They're getting much more hip. They're much more knowledgeable about stuff, the world. It's a little, sometimes a little too political. They're like wary about what you say. You're like, I can't, you shouldn't be able to say that. You can say this, you can't say that. I know there's some things probably that were massively offensive 50 years ago or 40 years ago when I started teaching, but that we can't say now. But I think sometimes it gets a little excited, like they're looking for something. Yeah. I mentioned suicide one time in class and a girl said, trigger. And her friend said, oh, that's right, trigger. And I thought, that's stupid. And I got really upset and I said, my eldest son committed suicide. I can't talk about that. Well, it might hurt someone. Does the institution tell you that you have to honor that when they say that? Not yet. Are they directing not the class? Yet. No, yeah. Not yet. Why don't you just get up and leave? That's it. Perfect. There was a girl in class who obviously had some issue about a scene because it hadn't involved sexual assault. And she said, I think I'll sit this one out. And she left the class. Right. Fine. And she works very well. She's very good. She's very talented. So she said, I can't deal with that now. The thing I noticed, and I don't expect you to agree or whatever, but I'm interested to get your thoughts, is that when I would teach school and I would guest at NYU, I'd walk in into a class for a day and I'd give my thoughts about whatever. And then I did the full semester, which was very interesting. And we had 11 pairs for scene study and we had 22 people come. What I realized was that now in the modern world, there are young people who come to acting school who have the cumes and the SATs to go to law school or right. medical school. Yeah. They're the creme de la creme academically, and they're coming here to study acting. Right. But a, a lot of them aren't very talented. <laughs> they're not very talented. They'd be better lawyers. Right. And I said to this school, I said, they're all very smart. I said, I'm in a room full of really smart people <laughs> who aren't very adventurous actors or artists. Right. And I said, what I would encourage you to do, and, they, and you could see them twitching. I'd say, you need to take two slots, one man, one woman, and lower it to a certain floor, like nothing below a 3.0, nothing below a specific SAT, but tear out two coupons and invite people in here you think are just purely talented, yeah. that you think gave an audition that just blew you away. And it's not just for their benefit, it's for the benefit of the other kids to see what good is. Yes. And who can take direction. Because yeah. in the studio at Strasbourg, where I went when I studied with you, it's a lot more, you know, less result-oriented and so forth, which is good. I'll never forget, um, there was a guy, I won't name his name, I'm so tempted to, <laughs> but he does Oberon in the class. And when he's done, the teacher just stands there and stares at him. And she literally looks over her shoulder at the rest of the class like, there it is. 
<laughs> he's just fantastic. I saw him 25 years later. He's a conductor on the subway. You know what I mean? He's just, yeah. you know, I'm not mocking that. Yeah. I'm just saying he's not. He, he, what happens in the classroom and what happens in the outside world is a very, very different thing. For me, the kinds of people that are going into the business, they want to be famous. I didn't really get that that much when I was no. in school. It's changed a lot. And, you know, and, of course, back in 54 when I was in my first class, I didn't know anything. Mike Nichols was in the class. Um, Elaine Aiken was in my class. Um, everybody in the class worked professionally. There were fewer actors and more jobs. And a lot of them were really good and had really long, wonderful careers. I think that's changed. That's changed a lot. Why do you stay here? Why? Why oh New York? Oh, my God, I don't want to go anywhere. I have sure connections now. I have this job, a great job. I love going to work every day. Uh, I only work three days a week, which is nice because I am 85. Those are long days, eight-hour days. And then I feel great. I have four yeah. days off a week. I have a wife who's great. She reads to me at nighttime, every night. We read Anna Karenina. We read War and Peace. We read uh, wonderful books. What a gift. She's the one created this Shakespeare company out of her imagination. And so I get to direct a Shakespeare play every year. We're doing Hamlet this year. When? In June, we have an apartment that I love. We had a cat that we loved, both of us, a wonderful cat. But uh, the cat died recently, and so suddenly you feel a little bit diminished. You ha I have four sure things, and now I only have three. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to teach somewhere else? No. Strasbourg works for you? Yeah. But based on what? What's the belief? Uh, uh, I think the, the hurts we have in childhood are the hurts we never get over. Uh, wounds of the spirit that never heal. Tennessee Williams writes about it beautifully, so I can't say it as beautifully as he says it. No matter how famous, no matter how rich, no matter how successful, it never goes away. Marlon Brando was as hurt the day he died as he was when he was a child mm -hmm. with a brutal father. Um, Strasberg stressed childhood, memory, emotion. If you get in touch with the hurt of your childhood through memory, the emotion will be there. When I would teach acting, I'd hire a piano player. Oh. So I have a guy who was a local guy come and play the piano, and we'd have a range of just very basic songs. You'd sing Climb Every Mountain, yeah. The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow. <laughs> and I made them get up there. Yeah. The I made them sing. Yeah. And I said, if you can't do this, you can't act. You've got to pull your pants down. You're, 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 you're not a singer? So what? I always remember this, that Maury Yeston, who wrote Nine, was yeah. at a party. I was at a benefit for like the roundabout or something. And there was Nathan Lane and this one and that one. And they were all talking about Broadway musicals and I don't sing. And Maury Yeston said to me, he said, you don't sing. I said, I really don't sing. And I wish I did. I can't sing. I really can't. I don't have the equipment. And he said, you know, Dustin Hoffman said the same thing to me. And I said to Dustin, sing the Star Spangled Banner in the style of Jimmy Durante. And Dustin Hoffman said, oh, say, <laughs> can you see? He said, now I want you to sing uh, Happy Birthday in the style of uh, Louis Armstrong. Happy birthday. He said, see, you're on key and you can sing when you're imitating somebody else. There you go. Because you don't have your own style. He said, we have to find your style. Oh. And you're going to wind up doing an impersonation of someone that doesn't exist, actually, which right. is the style we're going to create for you to sing. I thought that was fascinating when he said that about singing. You know, my, my wife, we did Bust Up. We, I directed Bust Up. It was a wonderful part for her. She was very good in it. But she can't sing at all. She sings one note a hundred times. It's the same note. It doesn't go up, doesn't go down, doesn't go faster, doesn't go slower. <laughs> Cannot do it. Now, maybe someone could get it. No, she even went to a singing coach. Nothing. Nothing. Do you think everybody can act? 
I think uh, I think some people have a uh, Meryl Streep is a wonderful actress, right? And she can do almost everything, but not everything. Yes. Uh, Marlon Brando, David Lean offered him the part of the Buddha. I'll make a movie with you, the Buddha. He said, I'm not right for the part. Yeah? He knew yeah. himself well. Yeah. I don't think it was just laziness on his part. Yeah. He said, I'm not right for it. I don't want to go to India. Jack Nicholson is a wonderful actor. He can't do everything. This girl in my class just yesterday, she worked on two scenes. In the first one, she was so terrible. It was just painful to watch. And then she did another one, and she was just couldn't have been better. It's the right part. You have to find something you connect to. And then eventually, uh, you keep putting it out there. I really believe this, and this is very, uh, you know, kind of metaphysical maybe, but you keep putting it out there, it's going to come back to you. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the same way? Yeah. So I remember Gregory Peck, my second wife, was in a To Kill a Mockingbird. She played the girl that accused the black guy of rape. Mayella Violet Yule, that was my second your, wife. Your second wife played Mayella Yule? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. Where did you meet her? At the studio? We were on the same TV show, and then we both were members of the studio, and then whatever. Right. Whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Marriage. Yeah, yeah right. that. I think I was still married. Well, never mind. Anyway, Gregory Peck, who I just met to say hello, I shook his hand, who was actually the most beautiful man I've ever seen in my yeah. life. He and his wife, I, bumped, I walked into an elevator, and they were standing there. I think I stood there with my mouth open like an idiot. Yeah. I felt like I was this big, and they were these giants. He said when he was 80... I should have taken more risks. And then just yesterday, I read this in class. One of my students sent it to me. It's a, the actor's something that Kazan wrote. And one of the things, don't be timid. That's the thing that I don't like. When people say, if you're shy, you can't be an actor. Well, I don't think that's true. I think, I remember meeting Robert De Niro. He was famous, but he was not in his element. Right. He was at a party. Right. And he felt awkward, and he seemed really shy, yeah, painfully shy. So does that mean he can't be an actor? If anybody had said that, no, Bobby, forget it. Just forget it. Do something else. You're too shy. I think that's why I like Strasburg is that there's no rule about how you're supposed to be. Well, in my career, uh, and I don't like that word, but I'll use it anyway because it's handy. In my career, there's two people who I studied acting with who said things to me that were pivotal. One was Elaine Aiken, who yeah. when I went to meet her with her privately to yeah. get a little bit of coaching, I did about a five or six sessions with her about streetcar, when I we were doing streetcar. And I remember when we did the play, I, I had an instinct like, oh, I want to not just work with Gregory, who is directing. I wanted to go get a little private thing mm-hmm. to get a little jump on it. And we're there in her apartment on Central Park West. And uh, she said to me, when we reached a juncture in the scene, and she said to me, she said, baby... This part, you know, he's an animal. He just, when he wants something, he just takes it. He's going to go right through who's ever in his way. She goes, and really, you're either sexy or you're not. There's nothing we can work on there. You've either got that or you don't. And then, of course, you who said, I want you to work on your insides Mm. as much as your outsides. Um, I saw you, of course, in Streetcar. Whatever yeah. it is that she, how she coached you worked because you were very sexy in that I owe it all to you and Elaine. And you were very funny. You were very funny. I owe it all to you and Elaine. Is there any part you want to do? I kept thinking of what part should Alec do that he hasn't done? Well, I think to myself, you know, obviously I think about my age. I I have an unshakable interest in trying to master After the Fall by Miller. Because that take on his marriage to Monroe is what's uh, in the the, the relationship between a man and a woman. And and that attraction we have to the wrong woman. And a woman's going to kill us. 
if we if we hang on there, we're going to go down with her. We're going to sink on that ship with her. Yeah. I was intrigued by that. Maybe yeah. not so much anymore because I'm very happily married. But yeah. when I was coupling with the wrong person, yeah. almost addictively, yeah. I was obsessed with that piece. Yeah. And then the other piece is uh, Iguana. I just love Iguana. Oh, yeah? I just love when they roll that old man out there and he says the poem yeah. and he drops dead. Yeah. I just want to play that ornery, alcoholic, fornicating madman. I want to play Shannon. Yeah. But the problem That's is- That's a great part. It's a great, but the problem is that in the Williams canon, everybody plays Shannon. Yeah. You play Chance, you play Stanley, you play Brick, oh, you yeah. play all the young parts, and then there's nothing until Shannon. Yeah. And then after Shannon, there's only the last stop is your big daddy. Yeah, right. So, I mean, every guy my age plays Shannon, so I've kind of backed off of that. But I'd like to do it one day, one day. You want to direct me and Shannon? That's a hard play. I don't know. If I, um, you know, I only work with my students. Well, you as a former student, I could direct you. I, uh, everybody that I work with, uh, that I direct, I've, I've taught. And so I don't have to, I don't have to cater to anybody. You know, sometimes actors, even though they've never done a job in their lives, you can have to cater to them a little bit. But uh, that'd be hard for you. I, do you know, um, you know who Barry Edelstein is? I know the name, yeah. He was... Uh, the Shakespeare guru at the public, and now he's in San Diego, the uh -huh. artistic director. And he was coaching some very well-known actors in his technique, verse technique, and he's really very good. He's extraordinarily knowledgeable about verse. And they were arguing with him because they were more famous than he was. And I thought, well, fuck that. I don't need mm. that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to get in an argument with anybody. Not that I think you would argue or be a pain, but I'm thinking of other people that I've known. Two because people. actors are always insecure when they go into a job, aren't they? And they, Yes. Always. Yes, they are. Always. And they, and they need someone to let them know they're going to be okay. You know, you're smart, you're insightful, but you're kind. And I feel that's essential. I'm not going to name names, but I remember teachers there at Strasbourg who you do the scene, they go, why'd you bother? Oh, my mother was nice, so I learned that. She was kind. Thank you for doing this with me. This Thank is you. great. What a nice thing to do. Jeffrey Horn. From lonely child to movie star to obscurity and a spectacular second act. As you heard, his teaching isn't his only gift to New York theater. The theater company he started with his wife, Billy Anderson, is called Shakespeare Downtown. Tickets are free. They rely on donations at shakespeardowntown.org. The Hamlet we discussed opens June 13th and runs through the 23rd. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is a production of WNYC Studios.